Good morning, everyone. Good morning, the, the late crowd. You missed it this morning. I had a whole bunch of really great jokes this, for the first service. That people were rolling in laughter. I'm all out now at this point, so I'll teach you to wake up a little bit earlier. Although, I have been here enough times to recognize a few faces that are normally first service people, so we all know. We all know you forgot to set your alarms correctly, so... You don't need to raise your hand, it's just between me and you, but everyone else already knows. So, uh, It really is a great privilege to be here, and uh, uh, I am honored to serve this church in the capacity of preaching this morning. Um, our vision, mission for song time is to enrich people's lives with the gospel, by articulating the gospel, sharing the gospel, not just uh, referring to it, but really impacting the gospel message into a daily life. So I host a radio broadcast that's heard here on the Cape on 88.3 Renew FM uh, from 7 in the morning and at 11 at night. So if you're, uh, okay, so none of you are early risers. So at 11 o'clock at night, you guys can listen to uh, the broadcast. Uh, We want to encourage you each day with the gospel so that you might uh, be enriched with that powerful truth and have a life transformed for, for the kingdom of God. Uh, every year at song time, I choose a different theme. And this year, I've chosen the theme of discipleship uh, because what we really want to emphasize is the importance of what it truly means to follow Christ. And as we look at the gospel of Luke today, this is the resounding theme throughout the book as he encourages us to consider the cost of discipleship, what it truly means to to be devoted to Jesus Christ. What does it cost? Salvation is free, but does it cost us anything in our devotion to him? We're going to be looking at the story of the rich ruler today in Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. So I want to encourage you to go to that passage with me as we read this text and Try to understand what it truly means to be a devoted disciple. Starting in verse verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commands. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. 
would you allow me to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon it and our study of this text. Father, we thank you for your word. Its riches are greater than our own comprehension can wrap our minds around, but yet it probes all the way to our innermost being and, and pricks us where we have often protected areas of our heart from being transformed. And today, as we gather, not only in worship, but in the study of your word, we come here because we truly do want to be disciples. We want to be better followers of you, and we want to know what that means and what it, what it takes for us to be devoted to your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be more like him. And so, Father, in, in this endeavor, we pray that you would reveal to us what needs to change, what things we need to let go of. That you would open our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts so that we might receive your truth in all sincerity and understand how it applies to us and what we need to do practically and, and genuinely so that we might be changed, that we might be transformed, and that we might be renewed and restored as only your grace can do. So we ask for this blessing now as we come into your word. May it bring us to life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of the Gospels centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is clear and undeniable. It is telling us who Jesus is and what he has come to do, what he preached and what he proclaimed. But it's very hard to relate to. A few years ago, I did my first marathon. And uh, being the first marathon that I'd ever run, um, I really wasn't prepared for what it was going to do. I started off pretty well. I kept pace with the, the group of guys that I was running with, but uh, they didn't stay back with me. Shame on them, right? I finished almost dead last because I just was not equipped. I wasn't ready for the race that was set before me. It was a bit too much. And sometimes when we're reading through the Gospels and we're seeing the story of Jesus, we get that impression. How can I keep up with Jesus? Look at how great he is, how how holy he is. I could never measure up. I could never stay in step with Jesus. If we're being honest with ourselves, that's a reality we all face. And so the, the story of the Gospels don't just give us Jesus, it also teaches us about his disciples. And his disciples, the story of their uh, challenges, their questions, their, their mistakes and all of their wobbles are there for us so that we might in some way connect with them and understand the real value and the real cost of being a disciple ourselves. There are to be relatable characters that we can identify with. And in this calling, we see in this encounter that Jesus is having with this rich man what, what we're seeing is somebody who wants to be a follower of Jesus, but the cost is just a little bit too high. We see this man who's most likely, in all in sense of the word, is most likely a Pharisee. It's actually Luke's term to often refer to uh, the Pharisees by calling them rich rulers. Uh, we see that in the rich man and Lazarus in that narrative. He tries to demonstrate uh, his remarkable qualities by coming to Jesus and saying, Good teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this seems like a good and genuine question, a question that you and I might ask. But Jesus, knowing this individual's heart, responds to him and says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, we all have friends like that. You know, the friends is like, how you doing? I'm good. He's like, well, no one's good. We're all sinners in, you know, in the eyes of God, right? We all have friends like that, and we try to avoid them, right? But what Jesus is actually saying here is connecting with what is actually happening in this text. This man called him good, but what is really going on behind the scenes is how this person viewed himself. We actually have a glimmer into this a few verses earlier when we look at verse 9. Here Jesus is about to tell a story to his followers about a Pharisee and a tax collector who are praying simultaneously in the temple. And the, the Pharisee says, oh God, I'm so thankful that you haven't made me like this tax collector, a sinner, while the sinner is there bearing his heart and his soul out to God, begging for forgiveness for his sins. And the verse preceding this story gives us a little insight into our story in verse 18. He says, He told in this terrible who trusted in, uh, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. See, this rich ruler in approaching Jesus, asking him what must he do to inherit eternal life, he wasn't approaching Jesus because he thought he was good. He thought he himself was good. And therein lies the problem. Jesus recognized his heart and he called him on it right away, but uh, didn't quite pick up on what Jesus was saying. And Jesus tells him, Any, you need to keep the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. The basic summation of the Old Testament law. Now this is most likely a Pharisee, and he would have responded just as we see him here. He couldn't compromise his spiritual status and stature. And he says, all of these things I've kept since my youth. Gives us a little more of a glimpse into who this person was like. He's like the student in college who raises his hand to ask a question but really wants to teach the professor, right? He doesn't actually want to learn anything. He wants to teach. He wants to present his knowledge. He wants to show Jesus just how great he actually is. Jesus recognizes his heart, and when Jesus responds to him, he said, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. This is a very heavy cost. And at this cost, it seems to strike a chord in the heart of this rich ruler, because hearing that, his face goes blank. His heart becomes sad. Why? Because the text tells us that he was extremely rich. Now, I don't see anyone in the audience today that is extremely rich, but if there is, and I've missed you, check with me afterwards because I do run a nonprofit and I have a few things we want to talk about. <laughs> but the real question here is, what is the cost of being a disciple? 
Is he just telling this specifically to the rich ruler or is he applying this to us as well? And if that's the case, how many of us are willing to buy in to the kingdom of God if it will cost us everything? If we have to sell everything we have, do we really think that the treasures in heaven will be greater than the treasures that we have earned with our own hands? This rich young ruler really gives us a picture, a glimpse into our own selves and forces us to ask a very serious question. What is keeping you out of heaven? What are you clinging to that won't allow you to fully embrace Jesus Christ? That is the question we all must ask. Now, what we typically like to do is do a little bit of a walk back. We like to opt out of this sermon because we've heard this before and we've actually seen it in its context and we say, hey, hold on a second. And in its micro-exegesis here, he's talking to a rich, extremely rich person and that doesn't apply to me. I'm not extremely rich. So we like to kind of backtrack and say this verse is particularly pointed to those who are rich. He, Jesus even goes on before, beyond that in verse 24. He says, seeing that he had become sad, he said, how difficult is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we say, clearly, this is a standard, this is a measurement that applies to a certain class of people, but we don't need to apply it to ourselves, right? Because we're not rich. We're not the difficult individuals. Uh, this is a challenge within our culture because as a society, we, we don't see rich people the same way the Jewish culture would have seen rich people. Uh, we look at rich people and we think, well, we've read the Bible and we know it's easier for a camel to get into heaven than for them to get in, or get to the ivy needle than for them to get into heaven. So we know that there's something up about rich people and they're bad. But secondly, we know that rich people in our culture were taught, you know, in our Western civilization that, you know, they're just hoarding money they don't even need and we're working week to week, paycheck to paycheck just to make ends meet. So this clearly doesn't apply to us. Until you look on a global sense and you see how many people are living on less than a dollar a day, and barely surviving, and yet they're far happier than we are today here in America. But the other reason we have a problem with this is because we know that this person is not just rich, he's also an elitist. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's smart. He's trying to actually show people how smart he is by talking to Jesus, and we don't like people like that either. He's arrogant. We don't like know-it-alls. So we're responding to this person saying, I understand why this person can't be saved. But here's the problem. That's not how the disciples and the followers of Jesus saw this scenario. Look at the next verse. Those who heard it, verse 26, said, then who can be saved? If he can't be saved... Who can be saved? Because within a Jewish context, those who were rich and those who were religious were considered closer to God. They had a class system that God blessed them with land, and if God gave you more land, he must have loved you more. They had turned the pendulum upside down, and quite honestly, we have applied this same principle in our own lives. 
We think that the more spiritual people are, like, you know, me, because I'm up front preaching, obviously I have greater grace than the rest of you who are just, you know, latecomers to the service. <laughs> right? But that's not the case. In this Jewish context, he's, they're looking at the religious leader and they're saying, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? Just the story right before this, in verse 15, Jesus is talking about little children and how the heaven is going to be occupied by little children because faith of a child. Let the little children come to me. This was a contrast in the mind of the disciples because children were the least important in their society. Children didn't matter. They had nothing to contribute. So when Jesus is inviting the children in, he's throwing this opposites up in their face so they can't even understand what Jesus is talking about. So when he confronts the rich ruler, their reaction is, who can be saved? And Jesus responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. We don't want to identify with the rich ruler, but I have to tell you, he is more like us than we want to admit because we are the ones who are holding on to things, unwilling to let them go, because they're so important to us. And also with that, we have this attitude of arrogance. And here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do you think that you have a leg up on your neighbor when it comes to salvation? Do you think that you're closer to Jesus, therefore you have more grace and more of God's love than the person across the street, than the homeless person who's living on the street? This is where it really comes down to the truth of the reality. We have to ask ourselves, do we really think that we are special because we have received God's grace? Or do we understand that our salvation is not our own We've been given a righteousness that is not our own. We've been saved by grace because we had nothing to offer in our own salvation. No money, no riches, no power, no special gifts. We came empty-handed. And God has given us all of himself. So we have to ask ourselves, Do we see ourselves in the rich young ruler? Or are we trying to deny and hide and guard our hearts from being convicted by his word? To truly understand this passage, we have to look at it in this greater context. Because the Gospel of Luke is driving home this perpetual theme of the cost of discipleship. This isn't the first time that Jesus has challenged somebody and told them they had to give up everything to follow him. Jesus himself gave up everything when he came down to earth. In his birth story, he came as a child, and we already know how humbling that is in the Jewish culture. And he was born of low birth. He was born of, of a very poor family, a working class family. And he didn't even have a, a royal throne to be placed on. He was laid in a manger, in a stable, because they didn't have room for him anywhere else. 
At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see him going off into the wilderness. For 40 days, he gives up eating food and fasts so that he could not only uh, spend time with God, but so that he could connect with us as human beings in our own frailty. Mainly to connect with the people of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But here is the key to understanding that principle. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he told him, why don't you take this rock and turn it into bread? And Jesus' response is, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word of God. Why? He's demonstrating for us priorities. What is most important to us? Food? We all need food. But what is truly most important to you? I was teaching a group of kids this last week on the subject of fasting, and I made sure to tell them that uh, it's not really their choice to skip, uh, to, to fast, especially if they're just using it as an excuse to not eat peas, so don't worry, okay? But I encouraged them to think about the priority, because when I was a little kid, uh, I was homeschooled, and as a result, I would um, uh, get an hour lunch break, and I loved Legos. I played with Legos all the time when I was a kid. I loved it so much that I would go during my lunch break into my room and play with Legos, and for the full hour, I'd be in my room. Until the end, my mom would call me and say, it's time to go back to school. And I would say, but mom, I haven't eaten any lunch yet. I've got to eat. And she wouldn't extend lunch break for me, so I would have to go back to school skipping a meal. What I was demonstrating in that was that Legos were more important to me than food. Have you ever been in a crisis in your life where you gave up a meal and you didn't even realize it? Because what was happening to you was so much more important than any of your hobbies, your entertainment, or the food that was laid out for you? Fasting in in this context is a demonstration for us that we are showing to ourselves and examining ourselves to see what truly is most important in our lives. That's what Jesus is demonstrating. But then when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, what does he tell them? Up front, he tells them to leave their nets behind, to leave their careers, to leave all of their life and to come and follow him. He tells them, get this, to take up their cross daily and follow him. Understand the weight of those words. He's telling them to sacrifice their own lives, not in death, but in living for him, as Paul tells us in Romans 12. Living sacrifices every day for the sake of following Christ. And he talks to them specifically about the cost of discipleship. He tells them they have to leave mother and father and house and children and friends and family and all of their riches, their careers and all of their dreams. If they want to follow him, they must leave everything behind. So no, this is not a specific message for a rich ruler. This is a message for all who choose to be Christ's disciples. And if we want to tell you anything less, we are selling you short of what it truly means to be a believer. The common idea nowadays is to make the gospel simple and to tell people all you got to do is say this prayer and ask Jesus in your heart, he'll forgive you and you can go to heaven when you die. The gospel is much bigger than that. It's telling you to give all that you have, everything that you have, and to lay it at his feet and to come and follow him step by step. 
The road is not easy, but it is beautiful. So we have to ask ourselves, what have we sacrificed? What have we sacrificed? And I don't mean, you know, waking up and giving up your Sunday mornings to come to church. What have we genuinely sacrificed to be a follower of Christ? If you want to know this more closely, ask those who know you the best. If you're a father, ask your children, ask your wife. What do they think is the most important thing to you? If you're a mother, ask your husband and your children what they think is the most important thing in your life. If you're a child, ask your friends. Ask your friends what they think is the most important to you. What is it? What would others identify your heart's greatest longing? The book of Luke is also a book of contrast. You constantly see these stories that go back and forth. And we can even see this in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who lived his whole life in these parties for himself to build his own status. And we see in the end he goes to hell. And Lazarus, a poor man living on the streets, basically begging for the crumbs off of the table of this rich man, a Pharisee, and he goes to heaven. We see this contrast as these pictures really put a juxtaposition of who are we more like? Are we more like the Pharisees or are we more like the Lazarus who had nothing of his own? We can sort of see this picture as well in the passage preceding this in verse 9 where you see the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying together. As well as later on in the text, you see uh, the Pharisees, as Jesus is in the temple, uh, he's with teaching the disciples on the Tuesday leading up to his crucifixion, and he's, he's recognizing the Pharisees throwing their money in the offering plates with great opulence. And then he points out this small widow, this little poor widow who only has two cents, and she throws it into the offering box. And Jesus says, This woman is greater than them, for they gave out of their increase, but she gave out of everything she had. And what Luke is telling us, what Jesus is demonstrating through this woman, is the true cost of discipleship. She had nothing. And she was giving her money to a corrupt system of temple worship. And yet God points out, that is the true price. That's the true, genuine image and picture of being a disciple. In the book of Acts, we see, which is actually part B of Luke's gospel, the same writer, this continuation of the story, we see uh, Barabbas, who, uh, or Barnabas, who had uh, a plot of land, and he sold it to give the money to the church to be used to help those in need. Great demonstration of giving all that you have, Right? But what do we see following that exact same story? We see Ananias and Sapphira, who seeing how he got all the praise, decided they're going to sell a plot of land, and they're going to give a portion of the money to the church. But they're going to tell him it was all that they had. And Ananias gets there first, and Peter asks him, you know, what is this offering? And he says, oh yeah, by, by the way, this is everything that we got for the land, the sale of the land. And the Holy Spirit strikes him dead in that very moment. His wife shows up an hour later, likely because she was deciding what to wear. And when she gets there, 
They ask her the same question. And she says, yeah, that was all the money we got for the land. Instantaneously, she's struck dead. Do you see the severity and the seriousness of what we're talking about here? There is a deep contrast, and I think that the closest contrast we have in this context is actually the context we were meant to read. As we read the story of the rich ruler, we just have to turn over one more chapter into chapter 19, and we see a different contrast. We see the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a tax collector who was actually a chief of tax collectors, and he was probably known for his corruption. He was a pretty awful man. And he climbs up, you know the story, he climbs up into the sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, and Jesus recognizes him and calls him out and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. This ruffled the feathers of the Pharisees who were hoping to have Jesus in their houses so that they could show off how important they were. But then he goes to Zacchaeus' house, and look how Zacchaeus responds in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you see the contrast? Jesus had to tell the rich man ruler what it would cost to be a disciple. But he didn't have to tell Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus knew the price of following God. He gave of his heart willingly. He gave all, half of all of his riches and whatever he defrauded fourfold. Now it's not the same as what we saw where Jesus told the rich man to sell all that he had, but you can see this is a clear contrast, a clear picture. You're already set up for that when Jesus starts off this whole narrative by talking about the rich, tax, or the rich um, Pharisee and the tax collector, you see? He's drawing your attention to these two stories because these are the real picture of what it truly means to be a disciple. So here's the question. Are we more like this rich ruler? Or are we like Zacchaeus? Willing, without even being told, to give of our life to follow Jesus Christ. This is a challenging narrative. And we would like it if it wasn't written for us. But it is. And this is where it gets convicting. Because we have to ask ourselves, what is, what is keeping you from the kingdom of God? When Peter saw this, he tells Jesus, see, in verse 28, we have left our homes and followed you. We've done what you've asked us to do. And Jesus responded to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life.
we look at the cost of discipleship and we say that's a heavy burden, and it is. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we negotiating with salvation? Are we bartering with sanctification? Is there anything in our life that is more important than our relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe you're here today and you see yourself in the rich ruler. You don't want to, but you do. You see that the cost of discipleship is too much. Let me tell you, he calls us to give everything, and he really does mean everything. When he told Zacchaeus that he was a son of Abraham, it takes us back to the greatest story in the Old Testament. Abraham had to go and sacrifice his own son Isaac because God had demanded him to do so. One of my favorite books by A.W. Tozer is called The Pursuit of God. And one of my favorite chapters in that book, chapter two, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing, Tozer describes this narrative of what Abraham actually had to do in taking his own son up that mountain to sacrifice him. Abraham was fully committed. When he raised that knife above his head, he knew what he was doing. He was going to kill his own son. But God provided a ram in the thicket. And he said, stop. I don't want your son. I just want your heart. Because nothing in your life is more valuable than Christ. It says we have to leave. We see it here. House, wife, brothers, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God. But here is the picture who will not receive many times in this time, many more in this time, in the age to come, eternal life. There is a cost to following Christ, but let me tell you, it is worth it. And Tozer says in that chapter, he says, nothing that we hold in our hands is ever truly safe. And you know this to be true. Because you've watched things that you've held on to fall away. You've watched as your family, you've worked so hard to provide for your family and to get promoted in your job and do all these things. And you sacrifice time with your children to provide for them. And then you see them resent you. You know how hard it is to do the things that you're trying to do. You're trying to hold everything together. And nothing that you hold in your hands is ever truly safe. But Tozer says, but nothing in the hands of God is ever truly lost. Your treasure, he said to the rich ruler, sell all that you have and your treasure will be in heaven. He wanted eternal life, but he didn't want the cost. He was a, not a wise investor. But here is a challenge for you. You've seen it. You know that the things you hold on to in this world are impossible to control. You can't control your spouse. You can't control your children. You can't control your work. Everything seems to be demanding on you. And you've been crushed by it. And Jesus says, give it to me. And I will lift you up. 
If you've never placed your trust in Jesus, today is a day of decision for you. Today is a day where you can realize the true cost of discipleship and the great reward, the great treasure there is, not only in eternity, but as Jesus says, in this time as well. But we have to ask ourselves. We have to ask, what are we clinging to that is preventing us from fully embracing Jesus Christ? This is why fasting is so important. This is what Jesus was demonstrating in the wilderness, showing the priority of things, but it also gives us an opportunity when we cut things out of our life to evaluate what truly is most important because here's the reality. You don't know how many things have creeped into your life until you've put them to the test. John Piper says, and I'm paraphrasing him because I didn't write it down, he says, that we think that we love God more than we actually do until we're willing to put that love to the test. You don't know how much your cell phone occupies your time until you leave it at home. You don't know how much food is a demand around your life until you give up and start fasting. You don't know how your relationships are demanding on you until you take some time to be alone with God. But this is the true test of our, our devotion to Christ, our willing to willingness to follow him. Are we holding on to the things of this world, even good things? Or are we putting them in the hands of Jesus? What are we clinging to? that won't allow us to embrace, fully embrace, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word, which is rich and powerful. It cuts us to, to ribbons, but in the most beautiful way because it reveals to us the things that are only causing us pain in our lives, only causing us to have issues of control that we were never meant to bear. So we ask that you would teach us by your grace and your mercy how to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Father, teach us from your word. Teach us from our devotion with you what it truly means to be a disciple. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.